0: But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? How would you answer that? They, the Pharisees and others, on that occasion said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came in the way of righteousness, and and you did not believe him. The tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, afterward you did not relent and believe him. That's one of the parables, two parables found in Matthew the 21st chapter. A parable that was prompted by an exchange that Jesus had with with the Pharisees about his authority. The chief priests and elders, specifically of the people, confronted him back in verse 23 of this chapter. Confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Well, Jesus responded with a question of his own. And he said, I'll ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he brought up the baptism of John. He said, where was it from, from heaven or from men? And that put them on the horns of a dilemma. They reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they were in a bind. So they just simply answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he proceeded to convict them with not only this parable that we have just cited in verses 28 through 32, but another parable followed it, which we will not be considering today, the parable of the wicked husbandman who killed one servant after another sent by God to them and ultimately the son himself. And following these parables the chief priests and Pharisees when they heard it they perceived he was speaking of them. They got the point. And their reaction was what? Repentance? No. No. Their reaction was they sought to slay him by or lay hands on him, in ultimately to slay him, of course, but they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. What a tragic reaction to the teaching of Jesus, the incomparable teaching of Jesus. We're going to look at that first parable in some detail this morning and see some lessons that we need to appreciate and, and learn about the incomparable teaching of Jesus, much of which was done in the form of parables. Parables that were understood by those who had the right attitude and were eager to understand. And in this case, they were understood even by those who didn't have the right attitude. They got the point, they understood about whom Jesus was speaking. The parable under consideration, the parable of the two sons, as it is generally called, begins with the question but what do you think and that's a question that's relevant to all of us today what do what do you think about this a man had two sons and we know that children can be different if we have more than one child and we've mentioned it before they are individuals and they have individual personalities and so forth and these are two sons who reacted very differently to what we look at first of all in this parable, and that is the request. We're going to see the request, we're going to see the responses, we're going to see the result, we're going to see the rebuke, and then we're going to see the reason for that rebuke at the end of verse 32. But notice first of all the request the request. And really, that's what it is. Oh, yes, I know we could say, well, it is somewhat of a command, but it it is not given in, in harsh terms. It is it is given, it is given in terms of endearment, if you will, that that reflect a relationship that brings about an obligation. That relationship being the Son to the Father. This certain man or this man has to represent God here. He has two sons, and much of this is similar to the two sons we read about in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Again, two sons who were ultimately and finally very different in their attitudes. But the prodigal son initially was rebellious, wasn't he? And that's what we see here initially in the first response to his request. But notice first of all the request itself. There's so much to glean from this request. What is it? The request is, son, go work today in my vineyard. Let's take a few moments and simply look at that. First of all, son. Again, that brings about a relationship, a reminder about a relationship that brings with it obligation and reminds us that if we are sons of God, that is, if we are sons and daughters of God, if we are the children of God, then not only does that relationship bring with it great blessings and great privileges that are beyond expression, but that relationship also brings about a great responsibility, a great obligation. An obligation to respond to what the Father, to what our Father has requested, if you will. Not what He forces us to do. Yes, He tells us, but, but He doesn't force us. And we get no indication from this parable that the man, the father with these sons, was forcing them to do anything, but simply requesting that they do it. A tender appeal based upon the obligation that flows from the relationship that they had to their father and the respect that they should have had for their father. Son, son, first of all. We need to appreciate the relationship that we have if we are privileged this morning to be sons and daughters of God, that is, children of God. But because of that relationship and because of that obligation, we see next in the request the phrase, Go work. Son, go work. Which tells us that if we enjoy the relationship of being children of God, that's a relationship that necessitates working for the Father. It is not a relationship that allows us to rest, but rather enjoins upon us the obligation to work, to be active, to be active, to be involved in the work that God has given us to do. And how do we know what that work is? The only way we can know what that work is is by going to the Word. The Word tells us not only to work, but the Word tells us the nature of the work in which we are to be involved. Everything that we need to know about the work that we're to do today for the Father is revealed to us clearly and completely in His Word. Specifically the New Testament that applies to us, the covenant under which we live, the covenant to which we are responsible. Go work. And we've often said how tragic it is that so many in the religious world today do all that they can. Work so hard to try to tell us you don't have to work in order to be pleasing to the Father. This parable denies that, as does the whole of New Testament teaching. If you're a son, you are to work. And the only way you can demonstrate your loyalty and your respect for the Father in heaven is by working the works that He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. And that's what the Lord reminds us of here in this beautiful and poignant parable is that we are to work. We're to work. And it is a faith that works that is a faith that saves. And a faith that will not work is not faith at all. Remember what James said about it? Faith without works is dead, being alone. That's reinforced for us here in the request of the Father. Son, go work. Beyond that, go work when? Go work today. Go work today. Not tomorrow, but today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to determine that you are going to become a worker for the Lord if you haven't. Today is the day that you have. You do not know about tomorrow. And James reminds us of that, doesn't he? In James chapter 4, that uh, people make their plans and say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, and they lay all sorts of plans without taking God into consideration and without realizing that this could be our last day on this earth. We simply do not know, have no assurance of tomorrow. That is, therefore, today is what we have. I know that Janice mentioned to the ladies who were present yesterday at the function downtown there about something we had learned of from my sister during the recent storms in Smithville. And there was a lady there who was on the telephone with her relatives telling them what the arrangements would be for her brother who had died and whose body was at the funeral home that morning Wednesday morning I guess she was on the telephone with relatives in other places telling them about what the arrangements would be when the tornado hit and they had his funeral at 11 o'clock Saturday and her funeral at 5 o'clock Saturday afternoon she was gone A tragedy that she had not anticipated. A tragedy indeed for that family to to lose two members of that family in that short time. Today, today, because tomorrow, we simply do not know what tomorrow brings. Today, go work today. Procrastination is one of the devils greatest and most effective tools. Oh yes, I know what I need to do and I'm going to do it, but I put it off. And we'll learn more about that in one of the responses of these two sons, won't we? Go work today. But notice further in this request. Go work today. Son, go work today in my vineyard. My vineyard. What is this Vineyard, first of all. The vineyard is the kingdom of God. Jesus alludes to it a little bit later on in this same parable. The vineyard is equivalent to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is equivalent to the church, isn't it? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about becoming laborers in the kingdom of God that was about to come into existence. And Jesus preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. John the baptizer preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Jesus promised as he lived among men that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, didn't he? And in Matthew, remember in Matthew chapter 16, that great exchange between Peter and the Lord, where the Lord asked the apostles on that occasion, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I say also to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, not Peter, but upon this confession, this great truth you have just expressed, I will build my vineyard. No, he doesn't say vineyard, but he could have. I will build my church. Because the church is the vineyard, as the vineyard is often used to describe the church. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then he says, and I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Later in this parable we're studying, he'll say the kingdom of God. Any difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? No. Any difference between the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and the church? No. Any difference between the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and the church, and the vineyard? No. They're all one in the same body, one in the same institution. And so when the Lord says, Son, go work today in my vineyard, He's saying, go work today in my church, the church I promised to build, and the church that He did in fact build as He arose from the dead and established His kingdom, which began on Pentecost Day, after his ascension to the Father, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. That's the vineyard in which we must labor. That's the only vineyard in which our labors can be productive for any eternal good. And oh, how tragic it is today that so many believe that it's not a question of vineyard singular, but it's vineyards plural. The Lord did not say, Son, go work today in the vineyard of your choice. He didn't say that. Go work today in my vineyard I have but one. Is it a denomination among other denominations? Are we saying the Lord's church about which we read in Scripture is a denomination that's better than all other denominations? No, indeed. We're saying that the church we read about in the Scriptures is the pre-denominational body of Christ, the pre-denominational church. And that we've got to lay aside all of the creeds and traditions and doctrines of men and come back to the teaching of the New Testament to be just what they were when they obeyed the teaching of the New Testament in the first century. And that is Christians, nothing more, nothing less, working in the vineyard of the Lord. And someone says, well, over in John 15, in John 15 it talks about Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Aren't the branches all the denominations? No. No, I am the vine, you are the branches. Again, a vineyard analogy somewhat, isn't it? I am the vine, I am the vine, ye are the branches. But who are the ye? Who are the ye? Who are the you, plural, here? Well, that's abundantly clear. If you read John 15, 1 through 8, that the branches are the individual members of the one vineyard, the one body, not different bodies, because down in verse 6 he says, or verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, and listen to it, he, not the denomination who abides in me, he, individually, he who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Verse 6, If any one does not abide in me, he, not a denomination, but he, an individual is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. No, Jesus is the vine, yes, but the branches are not the various denominations. The branches are the individual members of the one vineyard, the one body, the one pre-denominational church. That has to be our plea in the fervent hope that as we continue to make that plea, that honest, objective, truth-seeking people will see that that is indeed what the New Testament teaches. Go work today in my vineyard. The vineyard is the church. Now that's the request. And it's a request that's filled with meaning. And again, it's a request that doesn't force us to respond, does it? And we see the responses that this man, representing God, got from his two sons to that request. The first one answered and said, I will not. Rebellious. Rebellious at the beginning. I'm simply not going to do it. But then something changed. What was it? I don't know. We're not told. But afterward, we're simply told he regretted it and went. And that word regretted it, or that phrase regretted it, is a good translation. The King James mentions repented. But regret is what he did. And then he did let that regret lead him to full repentance. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a few moments. But he regretted what he had initially told his father. What made him rethink the situation? We do not know. We know that in Romans 2 verse 4, Paul reminds us that the goodness of God ought to lead us to repentance.
1: Maybe he thought
0: about the goodness of his father. Maybe he reflected on how much his father had done for him. What his obligation was to his father. How disrespectful he was to someone who had been so good to him. We simply do not know. But something caused him to change his Attitude, and he was remorseful. He felt bad about what he had said initially. He regretted it, and then he went. Now, we can say, well, you know, when he said, I will not, initially he was certainly not a hypocrite about it, was he? He just told his father right up front, I'm not going to do it. Well, is there any merit in that? No, there's no merit in simply saying, I won't, uh, by saying, well, at least I'm not hypocritical. You know, there might be some out there in the world today who are still saying, well, at least I'm not hypocritical. I'm not pretending to be something I'm not. I'm just telling you up front, I'm not there. I'm not going to do it. Where is the value or the merit in that? None whatsoever. So there was nothing nothing meritorious at all about his initial refusal, even though certainly he was not hypocritical, as we're about to see in the case of the second son. And so that didn't do him any good. The only good that was done was when he changed his thinking and went. And then he came to the second, verse 30, and said likewise. In other words, son, go work today in my vineyard. And the response of the second son was what? I go, sir. I'm going to do that. But he did not go. Did he ever intend to go? Maybe not may never have intended to go, may have just simply been saying that which he knew would be pleasing to his father, knowing the whole time he had no intention of following through and doing it. We don't know that. We just know that he said, I'll go. And yet he did not go. Which of the two, the Lord then asks us, as he asked the scribes and elders and Pharisees on this occasion, which of the two did the will of his father? Well, his audience on that occasion had no trouble giving the right answer. They quickly said, I'm sure, the first. That's what they said, the first. Probably didn't take them much time to think about it. They said, well, it's the first. He's the one who did the will of the Father. They don't know where it's leading, ultimately, where this is going to go in terms of coming right back home to them. But it was the first. Well, he didn't do the will of the Father initially, but he ultimately did. And so he did the will of his Father, thankfully. That's the result that we see after we see the two responses. The result is the first one did the will of the Father. That's the conclusion. And they reached the right conclusion. And so Jesus said to them, and here's the rebuke. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. What a rebuke. They weren't ready for that, were they? Tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Do we see in Scripture any indication that that happened? Well, even if we didn't, we couldn't change the truthfulness of what Jesus said because he said it, we know it was true. Well, we see that. If you'll look with me at Luke chapter 7, you see that uh, demonstrated. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 29 When all the people heard him, this is John the Baptist, the hymn refers to John the Baptist. When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. That's a significant statement, isn't it? John's baptism was valid for the time in which it was intended to be valid, And they should have responded to it and been baptized by John, but they rejected what? The counsel of God for themselves or against themselves. How did they do that? By not being baptized by John. Can you go to heaven by rejecting the counsel of God? I don't believe so. But the counsel of God was said here to include what? baptism. Now, the baptism of John is no longer valid, but there is a baptism that is, and it's just as essential as John's baptism was then, and that's the baptism in the name of or by the authority of Christ for the remission of our sins into the name or the authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can no more reject that baptism without rejecting the counsel of God against yourself than they did on that occasion by rejecting John's baptism and rejecting the very counsel of God Almighty. Assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. And now in the final verse, we see the reason for the rebuke. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, You did not afterward relent and believe him. There's the reason for the rebuke. You had the opportunity to do what many of the tax collectors and harlots did when they heard the preaching of John, which was the preaching from heaven, and they they relented. They regretted it and believed. You did not relent. And that word relent there in the New King James is the same as regretted it back in verse 29. A change of emotion, a change of feeling that led them to do what? To change their purpose, which is to repent. You see, one thing we need to appreciate is that regret alone is not repentance. Regret alone is not repentance. And the words here that are translated, regretted it in verse 29, and relent in verse 33, are good translations, because they represent the change of emotion, the change of feeling, that that did lead in one case, to repentance with the son, the first son who said, I will not, but afterward he regretted it, he felt sorrowful, and then he allowed that sorrow, that godly sorrow, to move him to repent. But in the case of, the Pharisees, and others, when you saw what the tax collectors and harlots did, Jesus said, you did not experience that same emotional change that the first son did. You did not regret it and believe him. In other words, you did not regret it and then allow that regret to move you to full repentance. What's the significance of that? Well, over in Matthew 27, remember Judas? In Matthew 27... Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord, when he saw that the Lord had been condemned in verse 3, was remorseful. That's the very same word, remorseful there in the New King James, as the word regretted in verse 29 here, and the word relent in verse 32. And so what we see is that he didn't repent. He regretted it. He was remorseful that he had done it, and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, verse 4, and they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver, verse 5, in the temple, and departed, and went and hanged himself. He regretted what he had done, just as the first son, who first said no, regretted what he had done, and then, moved to full change of mind and purpose the King James mentions the word repent in reference to Judas Iscariot he didn't repent did he he regretted what he had done but his sorrow was not the godly sorrow that led the first son to repentance it was the same kind of same kind of, of sorrow that some experience if they get caught Doing something that they hope to get by with. Are they sorry? Yes. But are they sorry in a way to lead them to fully change and repent? No. Many times they're sorry because they got caught. The point is regret is not sufficient unless that regret will lead us to do what it led the first son to do. He regretted it and then what? He went. He went. Now back to the original question. What do you think? What do you think? Where are you? What do you think about where you are in your response to the request of the Father in heaven, which is, go work today in my vineyard. If you haven't become a part of the vineyard, then certainly you cannot be son at this time a child of God who is in covenant relationship with God and therefore you can't work in the vineyard acceptably to God you first of all have to bring yourself into that relationship to where God can view you as this man did his two sons as sons as his children how do you do that by a belief in the son of God that leads you to fully repent of your sins confess him to be the Christ And then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. You see, unless you believe that I am he, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. So belief has to be followed by repentance. And then he mentioned confession. Confess me before men, he promised in Matthew 10, 32. And I'll confess you before the Father in heaven. And then he said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. It's not John's baptism. It's the Lord's baptism. But it is, it is the counsel of God, just as John's baptism was the counsel of God at that time. The baptism of the Great Commission, as we called it, the baptism in the name, into the name, the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the counsel of God for all who are living today and who, have, who will live until the Lord comes again. And we dare not reject the counsel of God against ourselves by refusing, by refusing, to submit to it. But when we've done those things, believed, repented, confessed Christ, and been baptized into Him, then He adds us to His vineyard. Not the vineyards. Doesn't doesn't tell us after we come forth from the watery grave, now go join the vineyard, go work in the vineyard of your choice. No, He adds you to His vineyard where you're to labor lovingly for the remainder of your life or until the Lord comes again, whichever occurs first. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to become a worker in the vineyard, a part of his church. If you have but you know today you're not working as you once did and you know that that is reflected in your life, in your influence, in sin that is known in a way that needs to be repented of in a way that is public then we plead with you to do that in coming home to be a worker once again in the vineyard of the Lord today because you do not know that you'll have tomorrow. And for all who need no change in their lives because you are following the request of a loving Father, as sons and daughters, you're working today and you'll be working tomorrow and every day hereafter in the vineyard of the Lord. May God continue to bless you as His laborers. But if you need to respond, will you come now as we stand and sing?